0: Super Bowl 51 is upon us. It's here. I'm excited. These are two good teams. This looks like a good matchup. Similar to the last time the Patriots were in the Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks, two well balanced teams with exciting offenses. This is exciting. I'm excited. I'm allowed to be excited about the Super Bowl. I'm not cynical about it, just genuinely excited. And I know the Roto Underworld Radio does not typically do the sporty sports talk segments. Super Bowl preview next. It's not what we do, but it's the Super Bowl. So I want to get it out of the way. Some Super Bowl preview analysis. Because I like the Patriots to cover. They're favored by three. I think the Patriots will win by more than that. That's my prediction. I'm not going to give you an exact score. Patriots 35, Falcons 28. No, I didn't say that. That's not my prediction. Exact predictions are lame. I think the Patriots will cover. How about that? Is that enough for you? Sportsy sports talk. But here's why the Patriots are going to cover. They don't have a weakness. Atlanta does have a weakness. Weighted DVOA, the football outsiders, isolated defensive efficiency metric. Atlanta was well below average. Not awful, not Cleveland, not San Francisco, but well below average. They are bottom 10 in the NFL in overall defense. And Atlanta's rush defense is slightly worse than their pass defense. And that hasn't been a problem throughout the playoffs for Atlanta. Why? Because they faced Seattle and they faced Green Bay. Two offensive lines were both in the bottom 10 on playerprofiler.com in run-blocking efficiency. So neither the Seahawks nor the Packers could run the ball consistently all year, and they couldn't make Atlanta pay for its weakness. So Atlanta's soft underbelly has yet to be exposed throughout this playoffs. And here come the New England Patriots. The New England Patriots, whose second running back, their second best running back, scored 18 touchdowns this season. That was their second best guy. Their one-dimensional between-the-tackles grinder. Because you hear so much about Tevin Coleman, and Devontae Freeman, two exceptional running back talents, and I agree with that. Sure, yes, Atlanta has a great offense. I know that. Everybody knows that. You can go ahead and stop talking about Atlanta's offense now. We get it. But it's overshadowing New England's run game because New England's run game is right there with Atlanta's. And it's New England's run game that is the key because it will exploit Atlanta's soft underbelly rolling up yards, rolling up touchdowns, and keeping the ball away from Matt Ryan and that Atlanta offense. That's the key to the game. The bottom line is the Patriots have a balanced attack that can truly gash Atlanta, and Atlanta has yet to face a truly balanced attack during the playoffs. And when you look at the Patriots, they don't have a specific weakness that can be exploited. The Patriots have one of the most efficient offenses in the league, just like Atlanta, but their defense is significantly better. It's not an elite defense, but it's bendable, but not breakable. So I think the Patriots have the personnel advantage on both sides of the ball. I think they have more talent on both sides of the ball, and they have an advantage in terms of in-game tactics, because the Patriots have the best tactician in the history of the NFL in Bill Belichick, facing Dan Quinn, a coach who has yet to make any high-pressure, game-defining decisions of any kind during his tenure with the Falcons in games with huge stakes. I mean, zero. Has Dan Quinn ever coached in a close game with huge stakes like the Super Bowl? No, nothing close to that. I don't know how his mind and body is going to react when he's put in that situation. We know how Belichick responds in that situation. That matters. And in general, I think the Patriots are the best in the NFL at leveraging those micro-advantages throughout the game. An extra 5 yards here on special teams. An extra 10 yards there because of clock management. Those small advantages add up over the course of a game. So you have a a team that's more balanced, is overall more talented when you add up offense, defense, and special teams with better coaching. So That's why the Patriots are favored, but I don't think they're favored enough. And I know why they're only favored by 3 points because... Atlanta came into this game having blown out both of their opponents. And the point differential matters in the playoffs. How we perceive Atlanta is disproportionately impacted by the difference in which they beat their opponents in the first and second round of the playoffs in which they played. So our perception of Atlanta right now is soaked in recency bias. And we've seen this before with the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills showed us that you can blow out all your opponents on your way to the Super Bowl, and it doesn't mean anything. The Buffalo Bills frequently destroyed teams like the Jacksonville Jaguars in the AFC Championship game before losing to teams like the Cowboys. By a lot. And if you think back, those weren't Big spreads that the Cowboys were enjoying heading into those Super Bowls. Why? Because the Bills had blown out their opponents in the playoffs. I think that's what's happened in the NFC. Atlanta faced two very flawed franchises at home, and they blew them out, as they should have. Atlanta faces the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game. It's not a blowout. Spoiler alert. This Atlanta Falcons team reminds me of the 90s Buffalo Bills teams, and which team is the present-day Cowboys, the modern football dynasty, the New England Patriots. Now, Buzzard writes in, you know, Ben Roethlisberger didn't win a Super Bowl as a rookie. The memories that some of you Buzzards have is astounding to me. A throwaway remark about Ben Roethlisberger three shows ago, and I'm still hearing about it in a show in which I was arguing that Tony Romo should have started in the playoffs for the Cowboys, that he gave the Cowboys a better chance to win. I was trying to address the counter-argument by admitting that, yes, there have been rookies that were capable of leading their teams to a Super Bowl, like Ben Roethlisberger in 2014. Why? Because Ben Roethlisberger went 15-1 and in 2014. But in fact, he didn't win a Super Bowl! He didn't even win. It helps prove my point that even if you go 15-1 and one as a rookie, you can still get beat in the playoffs because you're a rookie and you're not going to win in a shootout against a team like the New England Patriots in 2014. This proves my point. It's Just a useless correction. No, the 15-1 2004 Pittsburgh Steelers did not actually win the Super Bowl, but they did in 2006. Okay. It's my favorite kind of correction police ticket that's written from the buzzard army correcting me in a way that only serves to prove my point further it's very difficult for a rookie quarterback to rise up in the games in which his team needs to score a lot of points to win and almost every playoff team is going to find themselves in one of those situations during the season I think for Tom Brady, this is that week that he will have to put up more than 28 points in order to win, and I think he's very capable of doing that, but the argument for the Falcons is they're going to run all over the Patriots. No, they're not. The Pittsburgh Steelers also had a top 10 run game, just like the Patriots, just like the Falcons, and I was surprised to see the Patriots nullify the Pittsburgh Steelers run game. Oh, Le'Veon Bell was hurt. Well, D'Angelo Williams has been nearly as effective as the starting running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers when he's started compared to when Le'Veon Bell starts. So don't give me D'Angelo Williams. He's also a good running back. And he wasn't going anywhere against the Patriots. I believe the Patriots will do to the Atlanta Falcons what they did to the Pittsburgh Steelers, funnel targets to auxiliary receivers like Eli Rogers on the Steelers and like Mohamed Sanu on the Falcons, and inexperienced tight ends like Jesse James and Austin Hooper. The fact that New England has a quality run defense and Atlanta does not have a quality run defense will be the differentiating factor between the two teams. But I'm sure I just said something in the last 15 minutes that you all will object to. You found some small error in either the statistics I used or the logic I used And you will find a way to criticize me for it. You, the correction police officer buzzard. The guy who feels the need to let you know that he knows that even though Dak Prescott was drafted at slot 135, that that was actually a supplemental fourth round pick, not a fifth round pick, Fantasy Mansion. Dak Prescott was actually a fourth rounder, not a fifth rounder. I'm smart. You're an idiot. Just a useless contribution to the show i'm not saying don't correct me feel free to correct me but be clever about it i'll retweet it if it's clever but the boorish hacks that criticize me are not clever the listeners to the show that are clever they are sending me tweets and emails that make me smile that i'm retweeting because they're funny because they're creative but i've noticed that the buzzards that are predisposed to criticize my grammar or the specificity of some statistic, those individuals are predominantly not creative, not clever, do not have a sense of humor. So we have a group over here that listen to the show, and their contributions to the show have great value. They drive the content of the show. They enhance my presence and the show's presence on social media. It's great. And we have this other group, and their contribution has the precise value of a bag of dicks. The orangutan football fans, yes. Those that love to put on the correction police uniform and badge and wave around these irrelevant stat corrections, yes. Useless. These are the same individuals that latch on to single stats, as if a player can be encapsulated by a single number. And I saw this with Jay Ajayi last week. Matt Kelly, did you know that Jay Ajayi is number one? He's number one in Pro Football Focus's elusiveness rating. Did you know that? That means he's good, right? Automatically, if he's number one in such an impressive metric track by the pro football focus oh my god he must be amazing no he's not i mean sure he's number one in this elusiveness rating that pro football focus does but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a great running back great performances do not equal great players because mediocre players can find themselves in situations that allow them to post great performances without actually being great And Pro Football Focus's quote-unquote elusiveness rating does not measure elusiveness. It measures a ratio of forced broken tackles. That's different than our evaded tackle metric. Our evaded tackle metric measures both broken tackles and evaded tackles in which the running back did not even make contact with the defender or only made slight glancing contact. For a player like Deion Lewis, he's so elusive and he has such great lateral quickness and instincts that he can juke a defender literally out of his shoes. The shoe will fall off on the field, and he can go around the defender and not be touched. That's innovative tackle. That measures elusiveness. That's what factors into our juke rate metric. That would not be factored into anything that pro football focus is measuring with forced, broken tackles. That's why you see players like Jay Ajayi And Carlos Hyde at the top of these metrics, these are between the tackles grinders predominantly that are breaking a lot of tackles in and around the line of scrimmage. So the pro football focus version of an elusiveness metric puts a premium on the pounders. The player profiler elusiveness metric, evaded tackles and juke rate, treats all running backs equally regardless of their role. And you see a lot of the pro football focus writers tweeting lists like you see with Jay Ajayi being on top of the list of running back elusiveness grades. And we're starting to do more list tweeting. You follow us at Roto Underworld. You can also drop your buzzard remarks and feces on that timeline. Just tweet us at Roto Underworld. You can also email us at Roto Underworld at gmail.com. And we're doing more list tweeting. Yesterday, we tweeted out the running backs with the worst yards per touch in the NFL. Number one on the list, Dwayne Washington. And I loved how someone tweeted, which D. Washington is it? Because we just wrote D. Washington as an inside joke. People that listen to the show will get it. We just put D. Washington. That's a clever inside joke that only members of the audience that listen to Roto Underworld Radio would ever get but also anyone that has been paying attention to football in 2016 knows that that has to be Dwayne Washington. Of the D. Washingtons, the Washington with the worst yards per touch has to be Dwayne Washington because his yards per touch was below abysmal. Whatever abysmal is, when you think about abysmal, it's below abysmal. 3.3 yards per touch. Yards per touch. This isn't yards per carry. He had a 2.9 yards per carry, what? 3.3 yards per touch is almost a riddle because that includes yards per reception. Think about it. But Dwayne Washington only had 15 targets, which was surprising because Dwayne Washington was known as a passing down specialist at Washington. Ooh, a lot of people were fooled by Dwayne Washington he leaked into so many daily fantasy lineups in 2016 because when Theo Riddick was out and Amir Abdullah was out Dwayne Washington was projected to lead that backfield and touches and in particular carries so if he's going to be very inexpensive in DFS it's a free square right 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 Dwayne Washington free square wrong that's why we have efficiency metrics. So you could know, oh, wow, so Dwayne Washington's been highly inefficient this year. And with a 71.3 run-blocking efficiency grade on playerprofiler.com, the Detroit Lions were one of the worst run-blocking offensive lines in football. So starting Dwayne Washington may not net you any fantasy points. And that happened many weeks during the 2016 season. And showing the bottom 10 yards per touch running backs helps to illuminate that. Dwayne Washington was in the company of James Starks, Alfred Morris, Justin Forsett, Doug Martin, Thomas Rawls, Uh-oh. CJ Procise is coming Thomas, Kenneth Farrow, uh, uh, uh. that San Diego Chargers security guard. Did not have his hand in his pants because of a Kenneth Farrell long run because they never happened. Rashad Jennings, he's done. Todd Gurley, that's why Todd Gurley was a bust. Look no further than the yards per touch number. And Jonathan Stewart. Bellwether efficiency stat for Jonathan Stewart heading into 2017. So every day we tweet at least two or three top 10 lists on the Roto Underworld Twitter feed. And how do we do it? We do it because we have this handy tool called data analysis. Go to playerprofiler.com, click on data analysis at the top, and you can pull a list based on any metric on playerprofiler.com. College target share. Catch radius, yards per target, yards per carry against base defenses, depth of target, yards after contact. I mean, you can tweet just like any of the pro football focus guys. If you like how they're tweeting, you can get data analysis and tweet just like them. Just lists and lists of efficiency metrics. Just in your face with efficiency metrics. So using player profiler, you can tweet like a pro football-focused guy, and using Player Profiler's data analysis, you can also write an article like Matt Harmon writes, because Matt Harmon recently wrote an article that revolved around a single stat, cornerback passer rating against. And we also have that stat because we now have cornerback data on playerprofiler.com. If you sign up for premium, you get access to not only the rankings— data analysis, and our full cornerback suite, cornerback rankings, cornerback pages, and the ability to pull lists based on any of these metrics on cornerbacks in the data analysis tool, like passer rating against. And all Matt Harmon did in his last article was pull a list of cornerbacks based on passer rating against, created a top 10, and then listed those 10 cornerbacks and wrote a blurb about each one. That's it. You have an article. Done. Easy. Our data analysis tool is a fountain of article ideas for fantasy football writers. And I like articles that are built around a single stat. They're interesting to me. As long as the premise of the article is not that this one stat defines these players. Because no player can be defined by a single stat. I mean, passer rating against is an interesting metric for cornerbacks, but it doesn't define the best cornerbacks. Just because Xavier Rhodes has one of the best passer ratings against doesn't mean that he's better than, say, Richard Sherman because Richard Sherman was targeted many times less during the season than Xavier Rhodes. On a per-snap basis, Richard Sherman received 3% less targets than Xavier Rhodes that's a significant number so quarterbacks were staying away from Richard Sherman more than they were staying away from Xavier Rhodes and that matters so you can't just use so you can't just use one metric to rank players. Also passer rating against in particular poorly illuminates the quality of cornerbacks because passer rating by itself is a flawed stat. Now you're looking at passer rating of throws at a particular corner using that stat alone to rank players. So if you're going to be that myopic and focus in solely on a single metric, have to let the audience know, hey, this is interesting, and this factors into, and this is a way of viewing a player's quality, but it doesn't tell the full story, not even close. But if you have enough articles written about particular metrics, and you start to see the same players show up over and over again in these articles at the top of the list, you realize very quickly, oh, yes, oh so A.J. Boye, He's a top five corner. to Tlaib, he's elite. Both guys definitely better than Xavier Rhodes. So, Matt Kelly, are you saying that player profilers essentially NFL.com and pro football focus rolled into one? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I designed the site to be focused only on the things that I think are important. So, yeah. I know a lot of fantasy writers listen to this show, so I wanted to make sure I laid it out that we have great tools to help you improve your social media presence and spark article ideas. And a fun hypothetical I read on Twitter last week was that Dallas would have been better off drafting Jalen Ramsey in the first round and then Derrick Henry in the second round than drafting Ezekiel Elliott and a player in the second round that went to injured reserve. And I agreed with that. That's my favorite kind of hypothetical, the unfalsifiable what if. But if you think about it logically, it makes sense. I like those kinds of tweets because they make you think. And I couldn't find a counter argument to that because, of course, Dallas' defense would be much better off with Jalen Ramsey, and the presence of Jalen Ramsey could have been enough to throttle the Aaron Rodgers passing attack, and there's not a significant downgrade from Ezekiel Elliott to Derrick Henry. Sorry, I'm not sorry for saying that. But the analysis of Derrick Henry coming out of Alabama was that he needed runway. He needed a great offensive line to open up holes, and then he could gash them and maximize the yards that an offensive line could tee him up with. And sure enough, Derrick Henry went to a team with a top five run blocking offensive line in the Tennessee Titans. And it could be argued that the only team that's better at run blocking than, than the Tennessee Titans, the Dallas Cowboys. And it's never a good idea to draft a running back with a top five pick. It's just not. The way the NFL values the running back position, it was not an optimal use of draft capital. If you have a top five pick, you want to draft a true difference maker, a playmaker at one of the scarce positions, quarterback, cornerback, edge rusher. Why? Because a running back like Lamar Miller is available in free agency and a running back like Derrick Henry is available in the second round. So the opportunity cost is slight. When you look at Ezekiel Elliott versus Derrick Henry, but when you look at cornerbacks, the cornerback you could have got that picked four, Jalen Ramsey, versus the cornerback you would have drafted in the mid-second round, it's a significant difference. So now with hindsight, knowing that Jalen Ramsey is going to be special, and that knowing that Derrick Henry is a quality running back, of course Dallas should have drafted Ramsey and Henry over Ezekiel Elliott and Jalen Smith, who did not play a down in the NFL in 2016, but the aforementioned Matt Harmon disagreed. What was his argument? He called Ezekiel Elliott a culturally transformative player. I don't know what that means. He argued that the Dallas Cowboys were greater than the sum of their parts after they added Ezekiel Elliott. (laughs) See, I've heard the greater than the sum of their parts in many different contexts in business. You heard this in the 90s with the dot-coms. Yes. This website is greater than the sum of its parts. You need to buy it for a billion dollars. The greater than the sum of its parts is the warning flare argument. Because when the Cowboys added Ezekiel Elliott, he created an explosive meets explosive feedback loop. That made them even more explosive. They were already explosive. Then they added Ezekiel Elliott, who was really explosive. Then the team became just so explosive. What if they had a Derrick Henry? Eh, just more explosive, but not so explosive. Matt Harmon has discovered football cold fusion on Twitter. This went underreported last week. Yes. Surprised more people haven't been talking about it. It's conceptual nonsense. That's what it is. That's why no one talked about it. Also, how do you measure cultural transformation? Can you at least observe cultural transformation if you can't measure it? So if you can't measure it, you can't even observe it, you're looking at a nonsense narrative. That was even before the explosion meets explosion cold fusion aha moment. Yes. Matt Harmon also likes Jarvis Landry, and a lot of people like Jarvis Landry. Kevin Clark, writing for TheRinger.com, likes Jarvis Landry. He wrote a piece on Jarvis Landry. Jarvis Landry wants first blood. What does that mean? Well, there was a Rambo movie entitled Rambo First Blood. So why is there a reference to a Rambo movie in a Jarvis Landry article? (laughs) Because Jarvis Landry wears a bandana under his helmet. That's the detail that Kevin Clark decided to write an entire article around. Yes, that's my portal in to discuss Jarvis Landry's greatness. Headgear. Well, why do you wear that bandana, Jarvis? Well, I'm trying to be like Rambo on the football field. Oh, let me write that down. Bill Simmons has not had a good run after leaving ESPN. His HBO show failed in spectacular fashion, and now The Ringer is featuring articles about Jarvis Landry's headband. Pro tip to any future sports media moguls, do not ever leave ESPN. Big mistake. And reading this Jarvis Landry piece in The Ringer, there's even a quote. For me, the bandana, it reminds me of Rambo Part 2, First Blood. He was so in love with the war, so in love with the fight, that he didn't want to come home. Being home felt weird for him. Fighting, and for me, competing, was what he was born and bred to do. As soon as I put that headband on, I feel the same way. End quote. <laughs> wow! Let me get Jarvis Landry on my fantasy team. This sounds exciting. Rambo! Jarvis Landry inspiring the imagination because Kevin Clark admits that Jarvis Landry is not your prototypical receiver. He's only 5'11" and he clocked a 47740 yard dash at the NFL scouting combine. Kevin Clark concedes that that's not commonly associated with elite pro receivers. want to know why, Kevin? Because Jarvis Landry's not elite. That's why. That's, That's why. Small, slow. Small, slow. Not commonly associated with elite NFL receivers. Yeah, no shit. So many of you love Jarvis Landry. Yes, yes. Jarvis Landry wasn't bad this season. He merely wasn't bad. In his first and second year, he was bad. In 2015, 6.9 yards per target. In 2014, 6.9 yards per target. Negative production premiums. PlayerProfiler.com's situation agnostic efficiency measuring how did Jarvis Landry perform at any given down and distance against the average NFL wide receiver. Jarvis Landry, below average in 2014, below average in 2015. We also have target premium, which factors in quarterback play. No surprise, because Ryan Tannehill's below replacement, Jarvis Landry's target premium was better than his production premium, but still negative. Still outside the top 60 for two straight years until last year in which he did post 8.7 yards per target, yet still outside the top 25 NFL wide receivers. His production premium plus 9.1 35th in the league. However, Jarvis Landry's Target premium, which, again, factors in quarterback play and compares his output on a per-target basis to the other wide receivers in the passing game, most notably Kenny Stills and Devontae Parker. This was Jarvis Landry's worst target premium of his career. In 2016, he posted negative 8.3%, 75th in the league. So Miami's offense improved around him, and he remained the same. Still the same guy. I've argued for years that you can find a Jarvis Landry on every NFL roster. You cannot find a Devontae Parker on every NFL roster. You cannot find a Kenny Stills on every NFL roster. Those skill sets are more rare. The Jarvis Landry skill set is much more common. However, there are very few wide receivers on NFL rosters that wear headbands during games. The Jarvis Landry exuberance has reached truly mind-blowing proportions. He's being compared to Odell Beckham Jr. Scott Barrett on Twitter writes, Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. both posted 288 receptions. Only Odell Beckham Jr. has 1,071 more receiving yards. Those extra 1,000 receiving yards are a really big deal. Now, Odell Beckham Jr., posted those additional yards on more targets. So Jarvis Landry's catch rate has been higher than Odell Beckham Jr.'s, but Odell Beckham Jr.'s depth of target and therefore his yards per target been much better than Jarvis Landry throughout his career because Odell Beckham Jr. is an elite wide receiver and Jarvis Landry is not. Just look at the touchdowns. 35 touchdowns for Odell Beckham Jr., 13 for Jarvis Landry. These two players are not comparable at all. There's no reason to talk about them as if they're in the same tier. One is clearly elite. One is a rare talent. One is clearly not elite with a talent profile you can find on every NFL roster. But I would concede that the one trait that Jarvis Landry has that is superior to Odell Beckham Jr.'s mental toughness. Odell Beckham Jr. is struggling with the mental side of the game, clearly. Even if we didn't have any film of him acting strange in the locker room or acting strange on the sidelines, just the quotes from teammates tell you that at times he can become unhinged and it becomes very difficult to be his teammate in those situations. I understand that. You don't get that with Jarvis Landry. With Jarvis Landry, you only get, Seek and destroy in the jungle. Load my crossbow with grenades. It's true. You think, that's not possible. You can't launch a grenade from a crossbow. Oh, yes, you can. Rambo did it. Yes, Rambo had a bow and arrow, and he shot grenade-tipped arrows. It happened. Because you hear about Ezekiel Elliott's off-the-field concerns, behavioral concerns, and that impacts his dynasty stock. I think we have to treat OBJ with the same level of skepticism. At what point do we drop Odell Beckham Jr. below Mike Evans in our dynasty rankings? I think by consensus, most Dynasty League players would agree that the top two wide receivers are Odell Beckham Jr. and Mike Evans, but these are both flawed players. Odell Beckham Jr. has some emotional stability issues, and Mike Evans has a questionable work ethic. What's more important, work ethic or emotional stability? I don't know. It's a very difficult question. Contact the show at Roto Underworld or email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Let me know. What do you think is more important? Because red flags away from football matter, particularly when you're doing your dynasty rankings, when you're evaluating dynasty assets, you have to look at the player in totality, the holistic view. And when you think about Odell Beckham Jr. in the back of your mind, in the farthest recesses, you have to be considering his emotional stability a foreboding signal. You do. It could just be the manifestation of competitive fire. Or it could be something deeper. But there is reason to be concerned. If you're concerned about Odell Beckham Jr.'s behavior on the sideline and in the locker room, it's justified. The Odell Beckham Jr., starting with dating a Kardashian during training camp and then dating a kicking net and having a fight with a wall. One of the great storylines in the NFL was the roller coaster ride that was Odell Beckham Jr. off the football field. The entire Cowboys team provided great fodder for my show and other shows. The Dallas Cowboys were one of the great storylines of the 2016 season. How many segments did I do just on Tony Romo versus Dak Prescott? But then I read this on Twitter from Marcus Mosier. Follow him at Marcus underscore Mosier. He's a writer for Blogging the Boys, a very popular Dallas Cowboys blog. He wrote that the Cowboys only had one receiver that was below 6'2 in height graded as a first-round caliber draft pick in the last five years. That player was Tavon Austin. Just in case you thought the Dallas Cowboys were draft day geniuses because they selected both Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott in the 2016 draft. They're not. They got lucky. In fact, Dallas Cowboys scouts had Jeff Driscoll, Yes, Jeff Driscoll, quarterback, Louisiana Tech. Where is Jeff Driscoll now? Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Where he at? Where did Jeff Driscoll go? The Cowboys had Jeff Driscoll rated ahead of Dak Prescott. Ladies and gentlemen, your Dallas Cowboys scouting department. It's embarrassing. And Jeff Driscoll was available at the end of the fourth round when the Cowboys selected Dak Prescott. So why did the Dallas Cowboys select Dak Prescott and not Jeff Driscoll? Because Michael Irvin and Des Bryant went to Jerry Jones. They insisted that Jerry Jones draft Dak Prescott, pleaded with him. And because Jerry Jones is the authoritative leader of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones gets what he wants. The Dallas Cowboys draft who Jerry Jones wants to draft. So Jerry Jones overrode the decision and drafted Dak Prescott. So from now on, I can only go so far criticizing Jerry Jones. Because now and forever, we know that Jerry Jones altered the course of Dallas Cowboys history. And his decision, which quarterback to draft at the end of the fourth round, was a fork in the road that decided the fate of a franchise for the next 10 years. And Jerry Jones chose correctly. A great job! You did a great job. You have what? Could you say to that? If they hadn't selected Dak Prescott, the conversations in Dallas would be: Do we keep Tony Romo for another year, or do we let this Jeff Driscoll project take over the reins in 2017? Those conversations would be happening. Oh my God! Be thankful for Jerry Jones, Cowboys fans. Yet another example, however, how the NFL scouting industrial complex can be so wrong-headed in its evaluation of players because any NFL team could have drafted Dak Prescott before the Cowboys did, and the scouts in that war room wanted Driscoll, not Prescott. But go ahead, Dynasty gamers. Go ahead, Dynasty league enthusiasts. Go ahead and continue to base your evaluations of players on draft capital. Go ahead, knowing that that's how decisions are made. Go ahead. Go ahead. Make draft capital your baseline player evaluation input factor. Go ahead. Base everything else around draft capital. That's fine. Good idea. Continue to do that so I can continue to win my dynasty leagues. Thank you. But if we're going to discuss players with red flags away from football, we have to discuss the most polarizing player of all, Martavis Bryant. Martavis Bryant is the new polarization king. He now holds the mantle it was bequeathed to him by Josh Gordon. Very few people think that Josh Gordon will be back in the NFL. The Josh Gordon experiment is over. Now Martavis Bryant holds the mantle for most polarizing player that was suspended for a year because of substance abuse. And the parallels between Bryant and Gordon are striking because they were both exceptional downfield playmakers that completely changed their respective teams' offenses? How many analysts spoke about how the Pittsburgh Steelers were a completely different team without Martavis Bryant, that the loss of Martavis Bryant was a game-changer, that if Martavis Bryant were playing in the playoffs, that the Pittsburgh Steelers' offense would have been revolutionized, would have looked completely different, perhaps could have scored enough points to keep up with the Patriots? We'll never know. But I understand why the imagination of football analysts can run wild when looking at Martavis Bryant. Because in his first season in the league, on a per-target basis, he was one of the most efficient wide receivers. Top five production premium. Top five target premium. But his catch rate was hovering around 50%. Why? Because most of the targets were downfield targets. High degree of difficulty. Deep depth to those targets. So naturally, his catch rate was suppressed. But his production on a per-target basis was near the top of the league. And then what did he do last year? Well, 15.6 fantasy points per game in 2015. Top 20 fantasy wide receiver. This is an exciting talent. So I get why you would want Martavis Bryant on your dynasty team. Because what if he's not Josh Gordon? Josh Gordon relapsed. And he relapsed again and he relapsed again. And even though... He said the right things on social media. You would see pictures on the social media accounts of others in which Josh Gordon was present in the company of players like Johnny Manziel. Not a good sign. Not a good look. But we haven't seen Martavis Bryant in anyone's photos partying. Martavis Bryant has been nothing but contrite on social media, and he's doing a much better job of selling himself to sports media outlets, to the fans, and to fantasy football enthusiasts. I'm getting convinced that Martavis Bryant is going to be back. I'm getting excited. I'm getting sucked into this. I can't believe this, because there were times I thought Josh Gordon was back, and I was getting excited and then crushed, and they're doing it again. I was over Martavis Bryant. I was out. Just when you think you're out, he sucks you back in with incredible on-field efficiency and exceptional size-adjusted athleticism. Runs a 442 at 6'4" four, to 11. That's a 115.1 to 95th percentile height-adjusted speed score. His burst score, the vertical jump and the broad jump mixed together into one equally weighted metric, that's above the 80th percentile, and his catch radius is above the 90th percentile. And when you watch Martavis Bryant play, what is he doing? He's securing 40-yard bombs, and he's doing front-flip touchdowns in the end zone. Whoa! Yeah! When's he coming back? Uh, When? Yes! Now? Okay! Uh, Run the breaking news! He just applied for reinstatement! Martavis Bryant just applied for reinstatement! Oh my god! How soon? Now? How about now? Now? How about now? So I'm getting sucked into Martavis Bryant, slowly being convinced to believe in Martavis Bryant. And it wasn't long ago that TNT's Ernie Johnson told us that we should give Donald Trump a chance, that Donald Trump could convince us to believe in him. But That's not happening. Every day that goes by is another opportunity for Donald Trump to be skewered by the mainstream media and mocked on social media. Nate Silver and other political analysts expected Donald Trump to pivot to more centrist positions, but he's not doing that. He's doing the opposite. He's wading out into the extremes. He's antagonizing the public. Protests erupting in cities across the country. I can't believe he's doing this. I just can't believe it. Just strategically, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Who's giving him this advice? If you're gonna pass a law or executive orders that would create a public uproar, usually you try to do them in a stealth way. Donald Trump is not stealthy. He's in your face, yes. I didn't want to address Donald Trump on the show. This show is meant to be a distraction away from the real world. Many of you are stressed, you're agitated. Either the actions of the president or the reactions to the actions of the president are negatively impacting your lives. And my role is to be an entertainer so that you can slip on your earphones for 45 minutes and forget about the serious issues that we face. So I want to stick to sports. That's what I want to do. But I can't because I'm socially aware. I see what's happening around me. And Donald Trump's actions have engulfed the social media conversation sphere. I've never seen anything like it. If you think about the people I follow, mostly sports people, and some athletes and some musicians, some authors, all of them have some connection to sports. So typically when I look at my Twitter timeline, I see nine sports-related tweets and one, some other topic. Usually politics, but could be entertainment, something else. But somehow, some way, Donald Trump has hijacked Super Bowl week. I can't believe he's done this, but he, he has. It's, it's happened. And if he's going to engulf the social media conversation sphere and hijack Super Bowl week, I'm forced to talk about it because now my timeline has flipped. It was nine sports, one other. Now it's 50-50, half sports, half politics. So I have to address Donald Trump on this show. I feel compelled. So I'll give you one observation regarding Donald Trump's presidency thus far. I talked about all the different types of people that I follow on social media. 99% of those I follow on social media believe that most of Trump's policies are immoral. Just flat out immoral. But what struck me is, remember who I'm following. I'm following the creators in this world. Writers, artists, inventors, innovators. All those with the most imagination and creativity and ambition to create are the ones that I want to listen to. And all of those people seem to be disagreeing with Donald Trump. Let that sink in. Attention Roto Underworld Radio patrons, we will be launching a brand new Roto Underworld Radio patron-only Dynasty League this season. So if you are an official supporter of the show, email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com to express interest. If you'd like to become an official show patron, I highly encourage it. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash podcasts, click learn more, and get signed up. If you join the Minion program, you get a free t-shirt or hoodie in the exchange. This is a no-brainer. (coughs) (coughs) No, no, no,